Well, good morning. Oh, you can do better than that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, thank you. There we go. All right. All right. Uh, thank you. Four years ago, uh, when we as a church body were walking through our all-church study on transition, uh, in preparation for Pastor Corey handing the baton of leadership to Pastor Rocky, then one of the things that we talked through at that time, if you were a part of that study, uh, we talked about lamenting the losses, the losses that are an inevitable part of any transition. And what I didn't know at that time was that in these few short years, God would be leading me to step away from uh, this church family and that this would actually be one of those losses that I would need to lament. And so as uh, my time here comes to an end uh, and we prepare uh, for what's next, and I'm really thankful that God has given me the opportunity to then stand before you today to bring God's word. And as I do so, I I can't help but feel something of what uh, the Apostle Paul describes in so many of his New Testament letters Uh, Just a deep affection, a deep joy in seeing all that God is doing in you, in this church family. One of the the great privileges of serving as one of your pastors over all these years is that so many of you have let me in to see not only the the happy and exciting times, but uh, the difficult times, the dark times where There are tears and loss and questions and struggles and pain. And yet, in those very places, those dark and difficult places, I get to see God at work. And I hope you have seen God at work as well, redeeming, healing, sanctifying, helping, bringing hope and bringing transformation as only he can do. And so when I read a a letter, a New Testament letter, such as 1 Thessalonians that we're going to be looking at today, and I see Paul's love for that church, those people expressed in statements like, you would become very dear to us, and you are our glory and our joy, then I, I get that. I feel that same way about you. And I'm thankful that we live in such a time now unlike Paul's time, where my ongoing communication with you is not dependent on me handwriting a letter and giving it to a courier to walk to your house and deliver it, uh, as it was in Paul's days. But despite technology, I do know that the opportunities to connect with you will be less than it is when I see you week by week. And that is a loss that I lament because you have indeed become very dear to me and to our family. And so the passage that God led me to preach from today uh, comes at the end of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verses 12 to 24. And there he's giving some final instructions to those brothers and sisters in Christ whom he loved so dearly. And his instructions to those people, that church in Thessalonica, reflect much of my heart for you here. And so I believe that this is a fitting passage uh, for, as it will, my final charge to you as well. 
So if you are able, would you rise with me? And I'm going to read uh, from our passage here, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, 12 to 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12. And I'm, I'm going to just read through verse 22 right now. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Father, would you teach us this morning from your word? May our hearts be open, receptive to that which you desire, each one of us, particularly to hear, to take to heart from this passage. And Lord, may we grow in humility as we learn to relate with one another in the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at first glance, uh, this passage in 1 Thessalonians here may seem like the Apostle Paul is perhaps running out of time, like the courier who's going to deliver this letter is standing there next to him waiting and tapping his foot, and Paul's scrambling to finish it up, and so he forgoes his usual long, complex, run-on sentences and uh, just resorts to this bullet point list so that he can finish it up and, and send it off. And uh, yet we, we don't necessarily see how it's all connected, especially when our, our Bibles put a heading on it like final instructions. It just adds to the sense that this is just a list here. But the more that I've read this and studied this, the more that I do see a thread that's connecting uh, these verses here. It's a thread of humility, these are instructions for humble relating in the body of Christ. Now, obviously, as you've heard it read, nowhere does he use the word humility. It's not an explicit command to be humble. And yet, in one sense, isn't that the nature of humility, that it doesn't call attention to itself, but it essentially operates in the background? And so I believe as we dig into this passage, we see humility very much present here, that it gives us a picture of humility, particularly the humility that is at the core of how God calls us to relate to one another with one another in the body of Christ. So let's dig in here. The first couple verses look at the relationship between the church body and the church leaders. And our first point is humbly respect your leaders. Humbly respect your leaders. In verses 12 and 13, Paul makes a request, and this is a, a request as from a friend to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. He asks them to respect those who labor among you, to esteem them very highly in love. And respect here is literally the word to know. 
It means to perceive, to see, to pay attention, to understand, and then by implication, because of what you know, to respect and to appreciate. Often when we think of respecting those in leadership or someone in authority over us, we feel like if we really knew them, it would somehow diminish that sense of respect. And so sometimes, perhaps unintentionally, we keep a distance. But Paul is telling these brothers and sisters to know their leaders. And then in verse 13, he says it again, to esteem them very highly in love. So the consideration, the knowledge, the regard that they are to show for their leaders is an expression of love for them. And they are to show that love, he says, because of the leader's work. Well, the the work of these leaders, and just a side note here, note that it is speaking of leaders in the plural. He says those who labor and esteem them. There's a plurality, not just one. He says their work is characterized by these three phrases, that they labor among you, they are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. The word labor means weary. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest for their soul. So your leaders labor among you. They weary themselves in working hard to serve you. And that's one of the ways in which you need to know them, to respect them, to appreciate them, that there is a burden they carry, albeit gladly carry, because they love you, and yet it's something that does bring weariness to the soul. And it also says it's a labor among you. It's with you, in the midst of you. The call to lead in the body of Christ is not a call to sit up in an ivory tower somewhere and proclaim truth from on high to some faceless masses below. Rather, it's a call to walk among the people we lead as a shepherd does with his sheep, to know the heartaches and joys, the sins and the struggles, to see the mundane everyday life as well as the celebrations and the achievements to share life with one another. And I believe your pastors here do a very good job of that. Not only do leaders labor among you, but it says they're also over you in the Lord. And this carries not only the connotation of authority, but also a sense of care. The NIV translation actually puts it this way, care for you in the Lord. Again, the picture is that of a shepherd who is clearly the one in authority and yet who exercises that authority with gentle yet firm care. Earlier in this letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has already reminded these believers of how he himself has cared for them. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul had the authority as an apostle to make demands, but he did not exercise that authority in a harsh way, but he was gentle. He was gentle like a nursing mother with her baby. And so to lead and to care go hand in hand. 
And then Paul also says that leaders are to admonish. So the gentle care that characterizes leadership doesn't negate the need also to admonish, to correct, to warn, to pull back the sheep who are straying. And that also then is what the body needs to know and respect and appreciate in our leaders, that a part of the leader's call is to admonish. But when there is gentleness and care from the leaders and when the leaders are relating among the body, then when that admonishment happens, it will be much more easily received and responded to. And so in this uh, first example here, this first relationship between leaders and the body, there needs to be humility in both directions. It takes humility for leaders to labor long among their people, admonishing and teaching with gentleness and patience rather than lording it over them. And likewise, it takes humility on the part of the body to pay attention to the labors of your leaders, to know them and respect them rather than criticizing, to hold them in high regard rather than distancing yourselves. At the end of verse 13, Paul gives, in a sense, a a summary statement that applies to both leaders in the body. He says, be at peace among yourselves. So this kind of humble relating between leaders and congregation is meant to result in peace. It's not up to the leaders to somehow command peace, nor is it up to the congregation to make peace at any price. Rather, it's similar here as in Paul's instruction to the church in Rome, where he wrote, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, Romans 12, 18. So the call is to leaders to lead in a humble manner and to the body to respond humbly with respect and love. And when that is happening, then peace is the good fruit that comes from that kind of humble relating. So humbly respect your leaders. And now the second point, verses 14 and 15, humbly care for one another. Humbly care for one another. Paul asks again, but this time he uses a much stronger word, urge, in addressing the brothers and sisters, the whole body of Christ. He urges them, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. All of us in the body of Christ face different kinds of suffering and struggle. Thus, there are different kinds of care that we each need. And so humility and caring for one another means not assuming that everyone is like me or needs the kind of care that I do, but it's being flexible and adaptable, tailoring our care to the individual in need, as Ephesians 4.29 says, as fits the occasion. I don't think Paul is intending in this verse to give us these categories of idle and, and, and faint-hearted and weak, uh, you know, almost like a personality test, like these are uh, the only categories and everyone needs to fit into only one. But rather, he's listing a few broad categories, and then he has the catch-all phrase of be patient with them all, 
And then in verse 15, even more of a, of a catch-all, don't repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. So that if you miss anyone here, then that's the, the general command. That there's these particular ways of ministering uh, good, doing good to one another, but then there are, are many ways that we can seek to care for one another in the body of Christ. But let's look briefly at each of these uh, three categories that he does list in verse 14. He says, admonish the idle. Admonish the idle. Who are the idle? That word uh, translated as idle in ESV uh, shows up in other translations as disorderly, disruptive, undisciplined, unruly, The word was sometimes used of soldiers who were breaking rank. They were out of line. They were not following the rules. In both of Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica, he does address particularly those who are idle, who are not working for a living, mooching off of others. And so it's possible that he does have a very specific sense of unruliness in mind that needs to be admonished. But as we look at this today, there are certainly many other forms of a disordered or unruly life. This would be the the person who's willfully living outside the lines of God's good design and purpose. And for such a person whose sin is very apparent and clear-cut because it's this self-willed rebelliousness against God, then the kind of care that is needed is admonishment. Admonish the unruly. That's the same word he used in verse 12 that uh, is the task of the leaders to, to warn, to correct, to draw the lines clearly between good and evil, and then to strongly and winsomely call the person to get back in line for the good of their soul. And so in this verse, this is for all of us, not only leaders, all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ are called to admonish one another when that is needed, to point out sin, to help someone see how they are walking outside the bounds of God's good design, to call them toward repentance and change. But if this is indeed for all of us in the body, then that also means that we must be open to receiving that uh, from one another as well. And I'm not sure which is easier, receiving admonishment or giving admonishment. Both are not easy to do. And that is why this is a way that we humbly care for one another. Because much humility is needed in receiving correction without defensiveness and anger. Much humility is needed in administering admonishment while still recognizing our own weakness and propensity to sin. So we admonish the ruly. That's one kind of care. Secondly, he says we encourage the faint-hearted. We encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted means little soul, little soul. Someone who's faint-hearted is someone who's losing heart. They're sliding toward despair. They're battling with hopelessness. It's as if their very soul is shrinking or shriveling up. They're prone to give up. They constantly feel overwhelmed by life. They believe they're all alone in the battle. And what is the particular kind of ministry needed for the faint-hearted? Well, it's not admonishment. 
He does not say, admonish the faint-hearted, tell them to snap out of it. No, the faint-hearted need encouragement. We are to encourage the faint-hearted. Those who are losing heart need to be given reason to take heart again. In the context of this letter, 1 Thessalonians, encouragement is connected with the certain hope of Christ's return. Throughout the letter, one of the main themes that Paul is writing about to this church is teaching and correcting their understanding of Christ's return, reassuring them about those they loved who had already died and of the certainty of their destiny as Christians when Christ would return. And it's in light of those realities that in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these kind of reminders about your eternal hope and destiny. So how do we encourage the faint-hearted? As Christians, we have a much deeper source of encouragement than mere pep talk or platitudes or positivity. We encourage those whose souls are fainting by reminding them of the hope of eternity. Paul did that for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, telling them that though their outer selves were wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. That these troubles they were facing, when compared with the weight and the substance, the reality of the glory to come, are light and momentary and passing away. That reality of the coming of Christ which we are reminded of again in this Advent season, that is what encourages us in our suffering and sorrows. That's what allows us to truly encourage others to lift their fainting souls. Because brothers and sisters, there are some griefs that we will carry through our entire lives. There are some sufferings like disability or chronic pain that will not end this side of heaven. There are some sins we will struggle with until the grave. And I believe God allows those things, even gives those things to us so that we would learn to rely on him alone and not on ourselves. And Paul reminds the Christians in Thessalonica of this very reality in chapter 3, verse 3 of this letter. He's concerned that the believers not be shaken by the afflictions they are suffering. And so he reminds them, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, destined for suffering. In verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. Christians, we are not exempt from suffering in this life. And it's in these places of long suffering, daily struggle, where we are most likely to lose heart, to become discouraged. And it's often in those unending struggles also where we flounder most in trying to encourage a brother or sister, because what can we say? We know that there's not an easy answer. There's not a quick fix to point them toward. And so may we be a people who cling tightly to the certain hope of heaven. May our understanding of eternity in the presence of Christ grow and deepen 
and become this, this longing and ache in our soul so that when we are faced with suffering and struggle that does not end, that we can be truly encouraged by the hope of life to come. May that not sound trite or simplistic in our ears. But for we who are in Christ, may it strike a chord deep in our souls to know, to know, not, not merely to wish, but to know for certain that is our hope, that our God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that everything sad will come untrue, that sin and the effects of sin will be no more, that wrongs will be made right, that pain will be gone, disabled bodies and minds will be made whole, and we will worship our King and our God forever. That is our encouragement. That is our encouragement, and that is what the faint-hearted need to hear, to be reminded of again and again and again. So our humble care for one another in the body involves admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, and then third, he says, help the weak. Help the weak. Who are the weak? The word weak is actually the Greek word for strength, but it has the, the negative prefix a or ah attached. So it simply means without strength. And commentators surmise that it could refer to weak consciences, to moral or spiritual debility, to those shaken by persecution and their questions about the return of Christ. But I really love what David Pallison writes about this. Uh, Dr. Pallison was a former uh, executive director of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, CCEF. And he wrote a wonderful article on this one verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And I, I would love for you to actually go to the website and download uh, that, that article. I can't give it to you because it's copyrighted, but it's worth reading. That whole, whole article is wonderful in, in instructing us how we care for one another in the body. I think Laura made a QR code to put on the screen or on your app so you can find that. Um, it's worth the five bucks or whatever to purchase it. But this is what uh, David Pallison writes about uh, the, the weak here. He says, envision someone who needs ongoing help. They have marked limitations like an infant or a disabled child, someone whose handicaps mean that the possibility or likelihood of significant change is low. They may always need help. He goes on to write, these are people who are autistic or intellectually disabled, who are suffering Alzheimer's, who are simply elderly and dying. People who've suffered greatly, abused, abandoned, victimized, impoverished. People who are preoccupied by overwhelming pain, whether the pain is physical or relational. And so how are we called to care for the weak? He says we are to help the weak. Help the weak. Literally hold on to them. Hold firm to them. Protect them. Go to bat for them. Speak up for them. Give physical, tangible help to them, perhaps over and over. Take the initiative. 
they may not be able to even ask for help for themselves. So admonishment and even encouragement is not necessarily helpful for the one who is weak. Even if they do understand it, they may not have the capacity to bring about what is needed, and so we are called to help, to roll up our sleeves, to come alongside and help. And sometimes that kind of help is delightful, like holding the hand of a toddler as she learns to walk. But more often than not, help for the weak is not a pleasant task. It might be changing the soiled clothes of your father with Alzheimer's, flossing the teeth of your disabled sister or daughter, not just doing it once, but doing it every day over and over. So caregivers of the elderly or infirmed or disabled, those who are constantly pouring themselves out to help the weak, they are often, in turn, the ones most prone to losing heart and needing encouragement. The never-ending stream of unseen, unpleasant, exhausting care for someone who is weak can drain the soul of the caregiver so that they then need much encouragement to keep persevering in their help for the weak. Dr. Pallison again writes that sometimes with the weak, the greatest sanctification occurs in those who show care because the sufferers of weakness don't and can't change much. And that has certainly been the experience in my life. So we are called to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. But then Paul doesn't let any of us off the hook here. He says, be patient with them all. If any of you have children, you know that an unruly person rarely gets back in line with the first admonishment given. It is likely that they will need more correction, perhaps stronger admonishment, either for the very same issues or consistently changing array of problems. And the nature of unruliness means that you probably won't be receiving any thanks for your admonishment but instead perhaps anger or coldness. And so to care for the unruly requires much patience and humility. Likewise, the the faint-hearted may need ongoing encouragement. Once is not enough. You might be tempted to wonder why this struggle is such a big deal for them, why the same thing comes up again and again. And so encouraging the faint-hearted requires much patience and humility as well. And then helping the weak may be, by definition, something that never ends because the disability or the suffering or the struggle doesn't just disappear. And so helping the weak definitely requires much patience and humility. But what is the source of our patience with all of these? If we have tried before any length of time, we know that willpower and human resolve is not enough to keep us going in this kind of care. Instead, our patience comes from humbly remembering the gospel, from knowing that in God's eyes, every single one of us are unruly and faint-hearted and weak, and God is patient with us all. 
Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the epitome of unruliness, right? Turning to our own way, going astray. And apart from God, that is every one of us. But what is the good news? That God has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the unruliness, the sin of us all. If I forget my own sin, then my admonishment of others' unruliness will be harsh and ungracious. But when I remember and rejoice in my Savior's sacrifice that he took my unruliness and he gave me his righteousness, I can come with humility to the one I need to admonish. Hebrews 12.3 calls us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If I fail to realize my own faint-heartedness, my need to continually look to Christ, then my attempts to help others look to Christ will sound hollow and insincere. And Romans 5.6 says, For while we were still weak, and that's the same Greek word used in 1 Thessalonians 5. While we were still without strength, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Caring for the weak, perhaps more than anything else, helps us see our own weakness and need of Christ. And until I humbly see myself as just as helpless and weak and needy as this person I'm seeking to help, then my care will be tainted with condescension. My help will be lacking in grace. So the gospel humbles me in order that I might willingly enter the humiliation of helping the weak. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience toward us in Christ is what empowers our patience with one another in all our unruliness, faintheartedness, and weakness. So we humbly respect our leaders. We humbly care for one another in the body. Our third point is we humbly test what you hear humbly test what you hear. I'm just going to briefly skate over this here in verses 19 through 22, and then we'll come back to verses 16 through 18. But in 19 through 22, Paul calls them to stop quenching the Spirit, stop despising prophecies, and instead test everything. Apparently, at that time in the church in Thessalonica, there were misuses of particular gifts of the Spirit, in, in this case, particularly the gift of prophecy. And so there was good reason for them to quench false prophecies. There was good reason for them to stop that which did not build up the church. But these Christians apparently were taking it a step further, and they were treating anything and everything that might be prophetic as, as just wrong. And so instead of that blanket disregard, Paul is saying, that was moving even toward contempt or despising, then Paul's instruction is to test everything. So don't just throw it all out, but test it. Discern good from evil so that you can then hold on to the good 
while rejecting or abstaining from the evil. So do guard against the abuse of these gifts, but then don't let the possible misuses of them keep you from receiving what is good from the Spirit of God. Instead, do the harder work of testing and discerning right from wrong. Even if your stance on the gift of prophecy is that it's no longer active today, I think these verses here are still very instructive for us as we think about all the the information, the supposed truth that comes our way that we take in. Because in our humanness, it's much easier, right, to, to draw these lines, to make these camps, to, to put individuals or groups or ministries in one camp or another. And then what do we do? We, we either completely dismiss someone because we've assigned them to a camp we don't agree with, or we unquestionably accept anything they say because they're in this camp that we like. And it takes a whole lot of humility to stop drawing all those lines and instead to listen carefully, to do our homework well and understanding the issues at stake, to learn to discern good from evil, right from wrong, truth from error. A humble heart heart is a heart that's willing to listen and to learn, perhaps even be proven wrong, to believe that God does things that I can't understand. And therefore, we test and we discern. And that includes what I'm saying right here now. If you like me and are friends with me, don't just accept this blanketly because it's coming from Dan. Test it. And if you think I'm a bunch of hot air, don't reject it just because it's coming from me. But test it. Discern what is right and wrong. Test it against the Word of God. So as we look at this passage about respecting our leaders, caring well for one another, testing what we hear. These are all what we could call, what we call in the biblical counseling world, good fruit. They're ways of relating with one another in the body that are evidence that the Spirit is working in our hearts. For those of you that have been in the the ACE classes on biblical counseling, then think three trees diagram here, okay? The good fruit that comes out of our lives is produced, it's born uh, by the Spirit of God in us. That's why we call it fruit of the Spirit, right? There is fruit that comes from my effort, my human strength, ingenuity, but that is bad fruit. That's thorny uh, fruit. And Scripture says that both bad fruit and good fruit come from our hearts. And the difference is that the heart that produces the bad fruit is a heart dependent on self, looking to my own strength, my own wisdom, my own ability. And in contrast, the heart that bears good fruit is a heart dependent on Christ. And so we see this reality in Paul's instructions here that he does not merely command the believers to do all these things as if they could muster up the conviction and strength to do them on their own. But as part of his instructions in the midst of this list, he says in verses 16 through 18, rejoice, pray, give thanks. This is the will of God for you. And we could look at those commands as just more commands to add to this list that we're supposed to carry out in our own strength. But I want us to see them 
instead as, as the underlying posture of one who is humbly dependent on Christ. An underlying posture where our whole focus, our, our orientation, if, it, if you will, is, is turned toward God. And that really is the essence of humility, right? That we are depending on Him, looking to Him. So our final point here is humbly depend on Christ. Humbly depend on Christ. These verses rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances are often ones that are misunderstood, misapplied uh, as Christians, right? We get the idea that good Christians need to be happy all the time, say praise God when bad things happen, and, and we feel pressure to paste that Sunday smile on our face when we walk in the doors here, right? And then whenever we're struggling or suffering, we wonder if something's wrong because aren't Christians supposed to be rejoicing all the time? But if instead of seeing these commands here as this moralistic duty that we must obey, we see them as this toward God posture, then it frees us from that self-imposed pressure to just be happy all the time. And when we look at the way Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians, there's certainly rejoicing and thanksgiving and prayer that he is expressing there, but he's also very candid in this letter and honest about being driven out and hindered by the Jews in chapter 2, about all our distress and affliction in chapter 3, verse 7. And in, in his other letters as well, particularly 2 Corinthians, Paul openly shares his trials, his sufferings, lists them out even, without wallowing in self-pity about them, but neither is he dismissing them or putting a happy spin on it. The heartache isn't dismissed in order to focus on rejoicing in Christ. Rather, the rejoicing is actually amplified because it's seen in the midst of that great sorrow and suffering. The Psalms also model this toward God posture in the midst of what is hard and unhappy. The, the Psalm 56, which Vera read for us this morning, certainly has rejoicing and praying and giving thanks in it, but it's also crying out in pain and frustration. There's no positive spin on it when he speaks of being trampled, oppressed, attacked, afraid, injured, that his enemies are lurking in the shadows seeking to kill him, right? That's not happy, happy. And yet, what is the fundamental posture of that psalm and so many of the psalms? He's coming to God with his pain. He's crying out to God for rescue and grace. He's putting his trust in God as the one who can avenge him and help him. And then, yes, because he's bringing all this to God, then he's able to rejoice. He praises the word of God, the power of God to protect him. He recounts God's nearness, God's awareness of his tears and his tossings, God's deliverance of his soul, and expresses thanks. Back in 1 Thessalonians here, the verse does not say give thanks for all circumstances, right? But give thanks in all circumstances. So whatever our circumstances, whatever comes our way, if our heart's posture is toward God, then we can bring those circumstances to God in prayer. And what we rejoice in then is who God is in the midst of that. 
what we give thanks for is all that he has done for us in Christ in the midst of that circumstance. Therefore, as we learned a couple months ago in our all-church conference here, the more that we behold our God, the more that we come to understand of who he is and what he has done for us, the more that we find we can rejoice in whatever the circumstances Because our God is always good. He is always patient. He is always strong. He is always near. The more we see of the glory of him and of the gospel, the more we find for which we can rejoice and give thanks. And so as we humbly walk with one another in the body of Christ, this is really our goal, to look to Christ, to behold our God to ask what are the aspects of his character that minister to these particular struggles and suffering that we're facing. And so, as Paul closes his letter to the Thessalonians, he gives this wonderful benediction in verses 23 and 24, which helps his readers and helps us now to turn to God, to see God, to turn our attention to him, that the fruit born in our relationships would flow from hearts that are enthralled by the beauty and strength of God. And so this is how he closes here. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Evergreen Church family, this is our God. This is the God who changes our inward-turning, self-worshipping, thorns-producing hearts. And this is the God who transforms them into Christ-exalting, God-worshipping, fruit-bearing hearts. Hearts that rejoice and pray and give thanks because they're turned toward this God. This is the God who then brings forth good fruit Beautiful, sweet fruit from our hearts, the fruit of humble respect for our leaders, the fruit of humble care for one another, the fruit of humble testing of what we hear. So how is this God described even in these few couple verses of benediction? That he is the God of peace. If we are to live in peace among ourselves, it is because the God of peace is bringing that about. He is the God who sanctifies, the one who brings us out of darkness and into his glorious light, the one who changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh and forms it to be like the heart of Christ. He is God, our keeper, the one who will bring finally and fully to completion the good work he has begun in each of his children. He is the God who is coming again who one day will descend from heaven with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet, and call every one of his beloved ones to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. He is the God who is coming. And he is the God who is faithful, who keeps his promises, whose love never fails. He will surely do it. And notice one last thing in verse 23. It says, the God of peace 
himself does all of this. The God who has all authority and all power does not delegate this work of sanctifying and keeping his people. He himself does it. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. Trust him Depend on him. Look to him. If there is to be humble relating in this body of Christ, it must be empowered by him. He who calls us to humbly respect our leaders, he who calls leaders to labor and care for the flock, he is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls us to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all, he is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls us to humbly test what we hear, he is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls us to humbly depend on Christ, he is faithful. He will surely do it.